Well, good morning, friends and family, and welcome to what will be our first Sunday in the Advent season. Every year we gather and leading up to the Christmas day, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus' coming. That's actually what the word Advent means. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival of a noteworthy person. Did you hear the words of the songs we just sang? About darkness, not able to overcome the light. How he is bigger than what we may face. So as part of the Advent season, every year we light candles, four candles to be precise, one for hope, love, joy, and peace. And today we begin our Advent lighting with a hope candle. And helping us do it today is my friends, the Coley family. Will you turn your attention to the candles? Good morning. My name's Albert and this is my family, my wife, Mandy, my son, Luke, my daughter, Lorley. As it says in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. As we come into the Advent season, we reflect on Jesus, the light of the world. And we remember that this light that we celebrate at Christmas is the same light that conquered the darkness at Easter. For centuries, people held on to the hope that God would send the Messiah. When the time was right, Jesus came to us. He was hope incarnate. Now, as we eagerly await the second coming, we find ourselves in the same place, holding on to the hope and assurance that he will come again. As we light the hope candle this morning, we rejoice that God keeps his promises. Just as a flame can pierce the darkest night, we believe that our hope in Christ will continue to pierce the darkness and awaken hearts to the light of the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this moment to remember that you keep your promises. No matter how dark the world may get, you bring light. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.
All right, friends and family, if you will, go ahead and grab a seat and grab your Bibles. I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of prophecy, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be there here in just a moment. While you're turning there, I just want to welcome you again to this first Sunday in our church's Advent season. And again, by way of reminder, we'll say this every week, that word Advent is not a magical word. It's not a mystical word. It simply is from the Latin word that means the coming or arrival of a noteworthy person. And if you thumb through the pages of human history, you will not find anyone who rises to the level as noteworthy, as influential, as life-changing as the man who we believe was more than just a man, Jesus Christ. In fact, it doesn't matter who you are, you will be inundated with Christmas or Christ-centered imagery and language over the next month because he has permeated our society. No matter how people may wish to erase him from history, he will not be erased, nor will he allow anyone to do the erasure. And so we're going to celebrate Jesus today and all month by looking at this wonderful short passage in the book of Isaiah. And we're entitling this Advent sermon series or this teaching simply, He Shall Be Called. What shall he be called? I want to begin by a passage that was actually engraved on stone. If you go to New York City next to the United Nations building, there is a wall right next to it. And it's called the Isaiah Wall. For on this wall is written a passage from the book of Isaiah in chapter 2. It's a very familiar passage. This is what it looks like. I don't know if you can read it. I'll read this for you. This is from Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. How does that sound to anyone this morning? A world without war, a world full of peace. That was the hope of the UN. That was their purpose. Quick question though, how are they doing? How's the world doing? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world without war, a world full of peace, a utopia where everyone has what they need, where we don't need a thing called homeland security. Now, some of you may be arguing, we still don't need something called homeland security. That's another sermon. Where there's no color chart of hierarchy or threat levels. Can you imagine a world where everything is fair? Where politicians are actually saints. Now, I know that may take a little bit more of an imagination this morning. But where the people who are elected serve at the pleasure and for the purpose of the people, not for themselves or for their pleasure. Can you imagine a world that is ruled by one perfect mind and every decision is absolutely perfect and good and just? Let's do this for a minute. Try to imagine for just a moment a world where human health is such that if someone were to pass away at the age of 105, we would say, oh, what a shame. They died so young. Imagine a world where there's an abundance of food, where people do not go hungry, but people have more than enough to eat. Imagine a world where two and three and four jobs are not necessary to take care of your family. Imagine a world where people love one another, where God is revered. Can you imagine a world where a child can play in a snake pit and find that the snakes are very friendly? Can you imagine a world where food is so overabundant that even though we have so much, we have more than we need? 
This is the picture, believe it or not. What I've just described is the picture that is described in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's a picture of the coming kingdom and it is articulated in detail in chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah. Now this picture that we're describing is called by theologians the kingdom age. It is the period in history when Christ will come establishing his kingdom where we will be made whole, where sin will be gone, death will be killed, Satan will be in hell, and God's kids will be in heaven. Does that sound good to anyone else this morning? Because that's the passage we have before us, and this is what I want us to look at. Two verses today, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and then verse 6. These are the words of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now pause there before we go to the next verse. We're going to see over the next few weeks that this verse has some context in chapter 8. And it's going to describe what the world tries to do to overcome the darkness. And guess what? It don't work. And so then the, the... prophet says, but let me tell you about the one who will come, who will shatter the darkness. This light that has dawned has a name, but without giving us the name, he gives us the titles in verse six. For to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called. Here you go. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So this Advent season, we're going to look at these four names of our Messiah, King Jesus. And the very first one is Wonderful Counselor. Everyone, would you say on the count of three, Wonderful Counselor? One, two, three. Now let me tell you why I love this title, maybe more than any of the others. It's because when I hear this title, it makes me think of the old 1980s film, The Princess Bride. Let me explain. That word wonderful can be translated a couple different ways. One of those ways is incomprehensible or inconceivable. Now, how many of you, without seeing the movie, how many of you, uh, without looking at a clip, how many of you know what I'm talking about when I use the word inconceivable and Princess Bride? All right, look around. There's a lot of gray hair with hands up right now. For the rest of you, this is what I'm talking about. Roll film. That would be inconceivable. Inconceivable! Inconceivable. Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. All right. I don't think you know what that means. Okay. Here's what that word means. Are you ready? Understood by the ancient prophet, inconceivable, this wonderful counselor, one who's able to counsel, to guide, to inform, to give direction for life. This idea of wonderful or an inconceivable level of wisdom is simply one whose thoughts are so high, no human mind would come up with those answers. Which means the problems we face today are bigger than any human mind. So why do we keep looking for humans for the answers to the problems we face? Friends, another election isn't going to fix what ails the human race. Now, some of you may think, well, yeah, but it might alleviate it. Fair enough. But guess what? Until Jesus comes back, the world is still going to be busted. What we need 
You say, wonderful, inconceivably wise and good counselor who if we listen in, what he says won't make a lot of sense to us, nor should it because it's not the way we think. So all I want to do for the remaining 16 and a half minutes, according to that clock on the back, which I hate that clock on the back wall. For 16 minutes, all I want to do is unpack for you four ways in which Jesus, this wonderful counselor, has inconceivably changed the world in ways that some of us don't even realize. But maybe this morning, if you are still exploring what it means to follow him, or maybe you are a follower of Jesus today, but you have been holding back, trusting his wisdom, maybe I can help convince you from scripture that trusting Jesus as the wonderful counselor in your days, Monday through Saturday, are just as important as on Sunday morning. So here's a few things. Let's just walk through this very quickly. Jesus' counsel, his marvelous, wonderful counsel, has shaped, number one, how we express compassion. Let me give you a few things. Now, this is not first to say that the world would have no compassion without Jesus. Of course, that's not true. But it is a historic fact that compassion has taken shape because of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a little bit of history here. In the ancient world of the Greeks and the Romans, it was the beautiful, the handsome, or the strong that were prized. The weak and the marginalized were not generally valued. In fact, let me give you this quote from the ancient philosopher Seneca. He wrote this. We drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. That was the world before Jesus Christ. If you are not strong, rich, beautiful, powerful, you were not worth anything. There's a letter from a first century soldier who wrote to his wife. And it's a very pleasant letter. He begins with some pleasantries. And then he says these words. When the child is born, because she was pregnant, when the child is born, if it is a boy, he says, name him. And then he gives the name. But then he says this, but if it's a girl, let it die of exposure. That was the ancient world. It was only some who were valued, not everyone, because only some, because of what they could produce or what they could imagine, brought value to the world. Can you imagine a world where only the rich, only the powerful, only the strong, only the beautiful are considered valuable? What a world that must be. Except for this one little strange community. That was the ancient world. And the strange little community had met the wonderful counselor. And he had so upended their lives that they began to live in what were seen as weird, ludicrous, inconceivable ways of behaving. In fact, they loved everyone. They thought everyone had worth because they remembered Jesus' countercultural statement when he said, let the little children come to me, meaning all children are made in the image of God. He died for them. So these Christians began to take in the unwanted children into their homes, raising them as their own. Adoption was the Christian's idea. For example, there's a man. He's an early Christian man named Beningus of Dijon. He was known for his really spicy mustard. I love this guy. Some of you get that joke. I love his quote. He says this, We nursed, supported, and protected a number of deformed and crippled children that had been saved from death after failed abortions and exposures. This was the way that the Christians lived. But because of how crazy his view was for the rest of the world, notice this next slide. Do you see those two points sticking out of his shoulders? This image is depicting Beningus being executed. He was speared to death. Why? Because his view that all people of value was so countercultural, it had the potential of upending their society. And so you can't have that. So he was martyred. He was killed for his faith. 
What about hospitals? Let's talk about that for a moment. The first hospital was started in the 4th century by St. Benedict. By the 6th century, monasteries commonly had hospitals attached to them for those who were suffering. Now, over time, this is important, the idea of this wonderful counselor that compassion ought to be given to everybody began to take root in the larger culture. So let me give you a few more examples, not just this. There's this wonderful thing. About 150 years ago at the Geneva Convention, an organization was begun to alleviate human suffering. It shows as its symbol a large red cross. Does anyone know the name of this organization? The Red Cross. Very good. And then at Christmas, you'll be walking into stores and you'll hear a little jingly bell thing. What is this about? Well, there's another organization where people are ringing the bells and they call themselves the Salvation Army. Why? Because compassion was birthed by Jesus, expanded by his community. This was unheard of. It was inconceivable. And when you go to your doctor, if you go to the Methodist Hospital here, or if you go to Nashville to Baptist Hospital... The name on the building speaks to the wonderful compassion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Before Jesus, the world valued the most powerful, such as Nero and Caesar. But after Jesus, because of him, he valued everyone, women, children, widows, dock workers. And so now parents name their children Peter, Paul, and Mary, and they name their dogs Nero and Caesar because of Jesus Christ. He changed how we view compassion. Number two, write this down. Jesus' counsel, his wonderful counsel changed how we think about education. See, some of us don't even think about the way that Christ's wisdom has changed everything. Let me give you a few things here. When Jesus talks about God, he did not limit love to mere action, loving God just with the actions. Instead, notice what he says in Mark 12. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. The mind was valued. So what would it look like to love God with all your mind? Well, let me give you a few things here. Again, the Romans and Greeks prized learning. But guess what? Rome collapsed. They're gone. Rome is nowhere to be found. And so after Rome collapsed, you have the Huns, the Goths, the Visigoths, the barbarians destroyed Roman civilization to the point that there were no books left as we know them. They had no printing presses. They had scrolls which decay very fast. Now, we don't have any of their full scrolls from that period. So why do we still have the words and the ideas of the Roman thinkers? Have you ever thought about that? Here's why. It is primarily because in the 4th century and following that some of Jesus' followers entered into monastic communities and they began to meticulously write down the writings of the Romans. The reason we have their writings is because Christians believed that all truth, no matter where it comes from, all truth is God's truth. He is the epitome of truth. So if you find truth in another culture, guess what? That's from God. And so they recorded it. They loved learning. Eventually, a church began to build schools. The University of Paris in the 12th century, Oxford and Cambridge in the 13th century. All of these were begun by followers of Jesus Christ. The dream of universal education and literacy arose because of a particular Christian in the, in the 1500s named Martin Luther. And his view was that everyone should be able to read. In fact, I'll tell you how fundamental Jesus was to the rise of education in our country. 
Uh, I'll put this slide up here. There were 138, the very first 138 American schools. Quick question. Don't, write, don't put this up yet, but just pop quiz. How many of those do you think were started by Christians? 10%? 30%? 50%? Would you believe that 92% of the first 138 schools in America were started by Christians? Why? Because Jesus said part of his wise counsel is everyone should know God, love God, learn about the things in nature. Because his wise counsel said it's not just the wise and good and rich who deserve to know more. All people. In fact... The alphabet of the Slavs is called Cyrillic. Why is it called Cyrillic? It's because there was a man named St. Cyril who was a missionary for the Slavic people over a thousand years ago. They had no written alphabet, so he created an alphabet for them so that they would be able to read the story of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? We have a particular written language because someone needed to know about Jesus. In fact, not just there, but nation after nation, Christian missionaries found languages for which there was no written language had been created. And in acts of unbelievable heroism, they would give their lives to make a written language for these people so that they could hear the name, know the name, love the name of the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. In fact, the first and proper name written in many languages was the name Jesus. Can you imagine that? First language. You've never had a written thing and the very first word written is the name of the one for whom these people have come to give you language or give you a written language. So what does this have to do with Christmas? See, in the ancient world, only the wise people, only the rich people, only the good people, only the powerful people were worthy of an education. But because of Jesus Christ, his inconceivable counsel, he said, no, no, no. It is for all and for everyone. Number three, Jesus, the wonderful counselor, changed how we think about human rights. Everyone say human rights. Boy, you sound excited about that this morning. Let me tell you why this is actually very, very exciting for all of us in this room. There's this wonderful document that was written, oh, just a few years ago. We call it the Declaration of Independence. And it begins with these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal and have been endowed by their, what's that word, church? Creator with certain rights. Inalienable rights, we'll hear. Now, here's what's interesting to me about this. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Guess what? Before Jesus, it was not self-evident that all people were made equal or created valuable at all. In fact, the ancient uh, Roman writers would say that some people were born to be slaves. Did you know that? Not so, the followers of Jesus Christ, because it was Jesus who said, let the little children come to me. They have value. It was Jesus who, re- who responded talking about in the beginning, he made the male and female, but all are made in the image of God. And this view that all people have equal intrinsic value because God made them spilled into the community of followers of Jesus Christ until we come to this unbelievable passage in Galatians chapter 3, where this man by the name of Paul writes these words, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. In other words, none of the old barriers that separated communities mattered anymore. Does it mean that this man was no longer Jewish? No, of course he was. Or that woman was still a Greek? Of course she's still a Greek. 
What it is saying is that these differences no longer divide people, but we are now united because of the one name, the marvelous, wonderful, inconceivable counselor, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine a world that could use this kind of truth today? What if that truth, that there were no artificial differences, that skin pigmentation really wasn't a dividing factor, if gender was not the dividing factor among men and women? Can you imagine what it would look like here in Chattanooga if we got this deep in our bones? And what would it look like if when we hear on the news of a shooting, what would it look like if we did not ask what was the skin pigmentation of the one who did the shooting? How might that change things? Because here's the reality. All are made in the image of God. Does that make sense to us humans? No, we naturally divide. We naturally separate. It is the great, marvelous, wonderful, inconceivable counselor who said, you are made in the image of God. In fact, Thomas Cahill writes that this statement from Galatians is the first expression of egalitarianism in human history. That all people have equal dignity and equal worth. And that came from somewhere, friends. We didn't think it up either. It came from one who came who said, all people have dignity because God made them. And finally, number four, Jesus changed how we think of our enemies and how we view them. In Matthew chapter five, verse 39, Jesus says these unreal words. He says to a community, turn the other cheek. So when someone smacks you across the face, a sign of disrespect and shame, turn to them the other cheek. The other cheek. Go with someone a second mile. See, by law, a Roman soldier could say, carry my pack for a mile, and you would have to. But Jesus says, don't only do it for one mile, you go a second mile. Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The idea that you are to love your enemies is not a natural human idea. Let's just, let's make this real for a second here. Show of hands, I, I, this is all skate here. How many of you are either parents or you grew up with siblings? Anyone in here? Okay, now we've done this before, but let's just do it again. When either you as a sibling or one of your siblings or one of your children gets mad, let's say they grab the remote from the other child's hand. Mine! And they yell like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Where did that kid learn how to do that? Did you show them? Did they walk into the living room one day and see you grab the remote from your wife and say, mine? No. We are naturally selfish people who want what we want. We find enemies and we make enemies and we are often, because of sin nature, enemies to ourselves and to others. If you agree that that's at all accurate, could I get a little head nod from anyone here? So to say, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemy. Who in their right mind does that? That's not natural. That is not human counsel. Do you like what you're seeing based on human wisdom when it comes to our enemies? Do you like the division in this world? Do you like the way that families divide when when there's just this ongoing unsettled argument Do you like when you see the world up in arms? That is what human counsel has brought about. But Christmas reminds us that there is one who brings inconceivable counsel that if we will simply listen and say, I don't understand it, but I will walk in it. 
Is it possible Jesus can flip the world upside down again? I'll, let me give you a couple other things here. Jesus on the cross, what does he say? Blow them up. Fire from above. Send a meteor. No, what does he say? Father, forgive them. This was such a countercultural idea that the followers of Jesus Christ began to forgive people even while they themselves were being persecuted or murdered for their faith. There are many writings about this. We're told by one ancient writer, his name is Tacitus, he's not a Christian, but he writes about the Christian martyrs. In fact, that word martyr simply means one who is a witness and they die for their witness. But Tacitus writes, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, the Christian deaths. They were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or doomed to the flames. That reference to the flames is the fact that Nero, one of the Caesars, for fun would light Christians on fire. He doused them in pitch. He put them on a stick and he'd light them on fire to light his parties in his gardens. This is what the early church faced. And yet their response was not to dream of revenge or raise armories or take others' lives back. It was simply to say, we are going to love Nero. We are going to love Rome. We're going to love the crowds and the games that are calling for our deaths. We're going to love the soldiers executing us. Why? Where did that idea come from, church? It came from the inconceivable, wonderful counselor. One of the most famous speeches in the 20th century was delivered by a preacher by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. If you've gone to school, you've heard it. Do you know the story of how it happened, though? Dr. King was preaching from a prepared script, and his eyes were down on his page. And then he throws in a quote from the biblical prophet Amos. Go ahead and put this up, if you will. Justice rolls down like water, and until righteousness rolls like a mighty stream. And the crowd begins to stir. They begin to get excited. Uh, They they start to respond like a church service. Now, not a Church of Christ church service, but like a church service where people respond to the preaching. You know, that kind of church. (laughs) And then he begins to deviate. In fact, one voice, a woman by the name of Mahala Johnson, she says this. Mahala Jackson, she says, Martin, tell them about the dream. So he began to say these words, I have a dream. I have a dream that my children might be raised one day in a nation where they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day little black boys and girls might join hands with little white boys and girls. I have a dream that one day, and now he's quoting Isaiah, that every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be made low and all the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of God will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. I have a dream. That is the vision. That's the hope of shalom worldwide soul-satisfying peace that only comes not from the wisdom of humans, but the wisdom of our wonderful counselor. It is the wisdom that is proclaimed when you and I pray, our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. You're proclaiming, may the wonderful counsel of God be given to us and may we receive it. But it will not come through human wisdom. So let's talk for a moment. Where are you this morning 
Do we need to do a little evaluation? Are there places in your life that you go, man, I keep just bumping into the wall? Question, are you listening to your wisdom, the wisdom of others, or that of the wonderful counselor? If you're looking at your marriage and things are just constantly, just head to head, you're like, who is this person that I used to love? It feels like we never can get along. The question I would ask you, whose wisdom are you listening to this morning? If you find yourself as a parent just hitting your head against the wall saying, I can't seem to connect, here is a question. It may not be this only, but is it possible there is wisdom from God that you have yet to seek? Have you gone to the wonderful counselor and said, teach me, show me, help me? What about in pursuing a relationship? Some of you are hungry for a significant other. Have you gone to the father? Have you gone to the wise counselor? For some of you, when it comes to your finances... You keep bumping into problems because you're listening to the wisdom of the world. Have you listened to the wise counsel? What would it look like if this morning the people of God, instead of consulting things like our newspapers or things like the news or friends, what if we went to the one who is the wise counselor and said, will you teach me and whatever you say I will do? Is it possible that we may see a little bit more of his kingdom come, his will be done, not just on earth, not just in Chattanooga, but in my life, just as it is done in heaven. See, this is what Christmas is about. Christmas is the defiant declaration that wisdom, a wise counselor has come and he is ready to rule not only the nations, but our lives. And so we're left with a question at Christmas, aren't we? Who will you listen to this week? Will it be the wise, wonderful, marvelous counselor? Or will it be yourself or someone else? It's a question we all face, isn't it? Is it possible, though, that the work that he began 2,000 years ago could start again in your life today? I'm going to invite you to close your eyes, bow your head. We're going to pray together. In these next couple moments, here's all I'm going to invite you to do. Take inventory. Where do you need counsel? And would you be bold enough to say, I don't know the answers, but Lord, you do. Will you teach me? If that means to be reconciled to someone, it seems so counterintuitive to say, I'm sorry, but maybe that's what he's calling you to do today. Is it today to say yes to him in baptism? And you're saying, I just, I'm not sure what it looks like. You come find me out in the lobby as we sing this next song. You find me. We will take that next step together. Father, we thank you that this morning you are with us and that we are with you. That there is no place in all of heaven and earth where we can go that you are not. And so for my friends this morning, I ask that your wisdom would be made known. Would you speak to them as each person needs And for those who are genuinely open to receiving from you, may they hear from you today. For those who need to say yes to you, following you in baptism, we pray that you would just talk to them now about that. And for those who are just needing wisdom for the next step, would you give that to them? We thank you, dear Jesus, our wonderful counselor. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.